as we continue in our, there I am, sermon series, the gospel, a little too loudly, according to Christmas carols. This morning we're going to take a look at, uh, again, one of my favorite Christmas carols, Come All Ye Faithful, and we'll be examining the uh, adoration of the Magi found in Matthew chapter 2. So would you pray with me, and then we'll begin. I'm a little hot back there. Father, we pray that you would uh, be with us now. I pray that you would watch uh, over us and that you would uh, open our eyes to the beauty of what it means to worship you, that we would find great joy in giving you our adoration, our worship, um, and I pray that you would teach us through uh, the costly adoration and worship of the Magi what it looks like for us to worship him afresh this Christmas season. We love you, and we are so grateful for this time of year and for what you have done for us, Jesus, and it's in your name we ask it, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Emmanuel, and God's people said, amen. So this morning, I want to talk about the idea of adoration. You know, it's not something I think we often take time to ponder or to to consider, but since our carol for this morning's sermon series is, O come, all ye faithful, in every verse, this Christmas carol ends with a very familiar refrain, does it not? O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. The central theme and thrust of this carol is the idea of adoring Jesus Christ. And so I want us to begin this morning by asking if we know what it means to adore someone or something. Now, of course, we may use the word in sort of a, a light or flippant, flippant way, right? We may, uh, we may hear someone say, oh, I adore these shoes. Now, men, you probably don't say that, but your wives may say that. I adore these shoes. Or we may see a newborn baby and say what? Oh, how adorable, right? How adorable is this newborn baby? Or maybe if you visit Chicago in Christmas time and we say, oh, the Christmas lights of downtown Chicago are, are just adorable, right? And, and we simply mean what? That, well, we like that, right? It's, it's cute or it's pleasing to the eye. And in fact, that is one of the definitions of what it means to adore. And yet there is a sort of deeper meaning. And so as we examine this Christmas carol, which beckons us to come adore Jesus Christ, friends, it doesn't mean that we should look upon him and say, oh, he's cute, right? Or we should look upon him and say, oh, I I like him, right? The adoration that this Christmas carol calls us to, well, it means more something like to uh, esteem to the utmost, to love or to respect or to revere or to honor in the highest regard. Friends, that is what the author of this great Christmas carol is calling us to as we look at it this morning. So the question then becomes, who or what should we adore the most, right? It's one thing to adore kittens or a newborn baby or a pair of shoes, but this carol calls us to adore, to worship the one who is most worthy of our adoration and our worship. And of course, that is Christ the Lord. And yet, oftentimes, though this carol calls us to come, let us adore Him, our fallen, sinful human nature, what does it do? Well, it sort of calls us to adore ourselves, right? Oh, come, let us adore me, sort of like these t-shirts that I saw. Now, if you have a baby in something like this, oh, come, let us adore me, okay, it's kind of cute, right? It's reasonable. 
But how many adults are really going to buy that shirt, right? Are you going to buy that shirt? Oh, come, let us adore me. I don't know. I'm not going to buy it. Some of you might. Some people out there might buy it. But the point is simply is simply this. That's what our fallen nature does. We may not wear it uh, on our clothing, but our actions, our desires, our heart, it pulls us not upwards towards adoration of God, but inwards in adoration of us. And that is precisely why we need to worship, to adore Him. Because only by adoring Him can we break sin's pull to adore us. So there's a pastor who lived in England in the 19th century. His name was William Temple. His name was William Temple. And he has a wonderful definition of what it means to worship or to adore Christ. And he speaks to this, um, to this adoration. So he says, For worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose. And then notice these words. He says, And all of this gathered up, in adoration, and then he writes these words, speaking of adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature, nature is capable, and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness, which is our original sin, and the source of all actual sin. What is he saying? He's simply saying that in adoring God, if, if adoring God then is the, is the chief remedy to our self-centeredness, to our pull to adore us, then friends, we really need to know how to adore Him. And so what we're going to do this morning is, first of all, take a look at this well-known Christmas carol, O Come, All Ye Faithful, as the author calls both men and angels alike to bow before Christ in adoration. And then we'll shift gears and we'll take a look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, where we see three responses to the birth of Christ. Three responses to the birth of Christ that are still true today. The response of antagonism, the response of apathy, and then, of course, the intended response, the appropriate response, the, resp- the response of, of adoration. So let's take a look at O Come, All Ye Faithful, with a little bit of background, very brief here. Uh, in fact, for many years, researchers were unsure about the source of this Christmas carol. It was sort of hidden uh, in history. Uh, however, um, we have learned as of late that manuscripts indicate that this song was most likely written by an English layperson in the church by the name of John Wade. You can see him, he's there on the right. John Wade, and he wrote this uh, Christmas carol and he set it to music that most likely is very familiar to us today. The hymn first appeared in a collection that of, of, of hymns that he wrote in the year 1751. However, 100 years later, the other guy on the screen translated it into English. It was originally in Latin. And so our our carol that we sing in English today was written by, uh, uh, was translated by an English minister. His name was Frederick 
Oakley. And he wanted it to be used, well, as we use it today, as a Christmas carol. So with that sort of really brief introduction in mind, I want us to examine very quickly the three stanzas in this wonderful Christmas carol, O Come, All Ye Faithful. And stanza number one, the writer calls Christians to visualize afresh and anew the infant Jesus in the Bethlehem stable, and of course to respond to him in adoration. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. For what purpose? Come and behold him, born the king of angels. And then, of course, the familiar refrain, right? O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore Christ the Lord. Well, in verse 2, Wade calls on the angelic choir, right? We're familiar with the story from Luke chapter 2. And, and so Wade pictures the, the heavenly host, if you will, singing in adoration to the newborn Christ. He says, sing choirs of angels, sing in exultation, sing all you citizens of heaven above. Well, what is it that they're going to sing? Well, of course, taken from Luke chapter 2, they sing glory to God, all glory in the highest, and then the repeat of the familiar refrain, O come, let us adore him. In the third verse that we sing, and we'll sing it here to close our, our, our service off, Wade makes the adoration a little more personal. He calls, he calls us, uh, we, right, you and I, to greet Jesus and to give him glory, for he is the incarnate Word of God. He writes, Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. Jesus, to thee be all glory given. Word of the Father, of course, taken from John chapter 1. Word of the Father, now in flesh, appearing. O come, let us adore him. And so with this sort of brief look at the carol in mind, I want us to now transition to Matthew chapter 2. So I hope you have your Bibles open. We're going to take a look at uh, uh, the chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, where I think we see an example of this adoration that the carol talks about in the acts of adoration of the wise men, the magi, these mysterious uh, characters that we see show up on the scene in Matthew chapter 2. So let's begin with the magi and their example of adoration. You know, as I look at uh, Matthew chapter 2, which Larry read for us earlier, I think we can very clearly see that there were three different responses here that Matthew records to the birth of King Jesus. First of all, we see the response of antagonism by none other than King Herod. Second, we see the response of apathy. And really, we don't see it uh, much because, well, it's not there. There is an apathetic response, and we see it there by the religious leaders of Israel. There is a response of apathy. And then, of course, there is the response of adoration by the Magi. So let's take a look at verses 1 through 3 as we see the first response to the birth of Jesus, and that is the response of antagonism, hostility, outright hatred by King Herod. I think we see at least three ways that King Herod showed his antagonism towards Jesus. First of all, we see that he was disturbed. Uh, news uh, from these magi come uh, is brought to his ear in verses 1 through 3. And he is disturbed by the news of a rival king. Let's begin in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during, during the time of King Herod, Magi 
from the east came to Jerusalem. And they had a very uh, um, interesting question. And asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come for what purpose, church? To worship him, right? We have come to worship him. Now, in verse 3, when Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. See, Herod is disturbed because very clearly he sees this baby boy as a threat, right? This newborn king of the Jews is a threat to his throne because at that time, who is the king of the Jews, at least in his mind? Well, he is, right? He is King Herod, right? That's his rule. That's his territory. That's his throne. And yet news comes of a, of a, of a baby boy that was born not to be king of the Jews, but a baby boy born king of the Jews, right? And so this is a threat, a rival king. And given, sort of historically speaking, the Jews' desire at that time to throw off Roman rule, including Herod's rule over them, it is no wonder that he was disturbed. And so he gets some rather disturbing news. But not only that, if you take a look at verses 7 and 8, he then hatches a plan. He not only hears news of a rival king, but he wants to destroy that rival king. And so he hatches a plan, which the seed bed of that plan is found in verses 7 and 8. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I, too, may go and worship him. Why do you think, in verse 7, that Herod wanted to know the exact time that the star had appeared in the east? What kind of plan is going through his mind? Well, it's not a good plan, is it? He wants to find out, how, when was this child born, right? How old is this child? Because I need to know what kind of child I'm looking for. Is he two? Is he three? Is he ten? I need to know because what, is, what, what does he have in mind? Well, we see later in verse 16 in particular that he has in mind uh, murder, right? Under the pretext of worship, he says to the Magi, Why don't you go and, and find him for me and just come report because I too, I too want to, to worship him. Well, indeed, he had no intentions of worshiping Jesus as the Magi did. No, he had a plan, and we see later in the chapter, in fact, if you want to take a look at verse 16 in chapter 2, we see not only did he have a plan, but when that plan was foiled, well, he went to plan B. And we see it in verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And so all of this we see, um, the response to the birth of King Jesus, the response of antagonism, right, of hostility, uh, of wanting to get rid of this newborn king. He clearly represents the antagonistic response. Friends, let me ask you a question. Do we still see antagonism shown towards Jesus in our day? Yes or no? 
Yes, we do. We see it in a host of ways, do we not? I could spend the rest of my time elaborating on that, but we'll just sort of shorten the time because we've got a lot more to cover. But, but there is still this sense of antagonism uh, today. Now, it may not be as overt. It, it may not be uh, a murderous, although in some cases uh, it is. Uh, I think in our culture here in the States, the most maybe uh, overt hostility to Jesus, we may see it, for instance, when groups like um, the ACLU, maybe they want to attempt to remove a nativity scene from the courthouse. That that is overt hostility to Jesus. Uh, Maybe a little closer to home, I saw on the news just, I think it was just last week, that there was a news report from uh, the capital of Illinois in Bloomington that uh, alongside the Christmas tree and alongside the Jewish menorah that there was a third statue placed. I don't know if you saw this or not, but there is a third statue placed there uh, in, in celebration of the holiday time, but it was placed there by a group called the Satanic Temple of Chicago. I'm not making this up. I would show you a picture, but it's too offensive to show in church. The Satanic Temple of Chicago displayed a statue in our state's capital, uh, which says, on, and there was a sign on the front, which says, knowledge is the real gift. Knowledge is the real gift, like they are giving us this knowledge. And then on the back of the sign, it says this, and I quote, religion is but myth and superstition that hardens hearts and enslaves minds. Friends, is that an example of hostility to Jesus? No, of course it is, right? Absolutely. But, the, but friends, antagonism to Jesus doesn't have to be that overt. It doesn't have to be that, that public. It, it, it could be someone who is a, who is not a Christian, um, being hesitant to attend a, a service at Christmas time. They, they don't want to go to that because, well, they're not quite sure about this Jesus character. Maybe they don't want to have conversations about spiritual or moral matters during family gatherings. There is a, an under-the-surface hostility that is brewing in their hearts against the newborn babe. Um, we see it uh, in, in other ways, right? Uh, there's uh, It could demonstrate itself in a hostility not towards Jesus, but towards Jesus' people, right? This open hostility towards Christians that we see in, in numerous ways. See, to King Herod, what was the birth of Christ? To King Herod, the birth of Jesus was, was nothing less than a rival king, right? A rival authority to usurp his authority. Friends, let me be clear that what Herod did so many years ago with King Jesus is what all unbelievers do. You've done it and I have done it before I was a Christian. We fight the kingship and the lordship of Jesus to rule over our lives. Do we not? You did it and I did it and Herod did it as well. That is the natural response of the unbeliever is to say, I know that there is this rival king in my life, but I'm not going to submit to him. I'm not going to worship him. We want to do what we want, our own thing, our own rules, our own way. And the birth of this newborn king, which is celebrated at Christmas time, it makes us hostile to him. Because, friends, there can only be one king, right? There can only be one king over our life. And so the question is, is it King Jesus? Or is it someone or something else? But there's a second response. Not only do we see antagonism in Matthew chapter 2, but we see apathy. We see apathy in Matthew chapter 2. And we see it in the religious leaders of Israel. Take a look in your Bible at verses 4 through 6. Matthew writes, When he had called together... 
all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Now let me ask you a question. Did the chief teachers and the religious leaders of Israel know where the Messiah was supposed to be born? Yes or no? Yes, they did, right? So let's keep reading verse 5. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet uh, has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Okay, so let me just paint this picture for you, right? The Magi come to Jerusalem. They seek an audience with the king. They, there, there's uh, uh, the birth of this uh, king of the Jews. And Herod is disturbed. He begins to hatch a plan. Herod comes to them and he's like, hey, where should I look, right? If there's a king to be born, where should I look? And they know the exact place. Go to Bethlehem. That's where Messiah is supposed to be born. And so then Herod sends the Magi to go look for him. But let me ask you this. Does Matthew record for us any response, any effort undertaken by the religious leaders to go to Bethlehem to look for themselves? Yes or no? No, right? It just moves on. They know where the Messiah is to be born. They know that there are these mysterious magi from the east who said, we've been following this supernatural star and the king, the Messiah, is born in Bethlehem. We're going to go check it out. Do the religious leaders of Israel go to check it out? There is no indication that they go at all. See, they knew the scriptures And they knew the Savior of which the Scriptures spoke, but they did nothing about it. They didn't go to investigate. Friends, do you know how far it was between Jerusalem and Bethlehem? It wasn't far, about five miles. You could walk there in a day to go investigate it. And they did not. Friends, apathy happens among the religious, and it happens among the Irreligious. It happens among the irreligious um, in a host of ways. It happens when people don't care to investigate who Jesus is. They don't give a fair shake to who Jesus is. They sort of just dismiss him. He's a religious figure. He's a moral teacher. But really, he's no different than Buddha or Muhammad or Gandhi, right? He's just another sort of religious uh, uh, a leader. And they're content to let religious folks have their Jesus at, at Christmas time. But don't you dare tell them that they need to repent and trust in Him as their Savior. Don't tell them that, right? They don't want to hear that. They're just very comfortable being apathetic, uh, happily ignorant of who this Jesus Christ is. But friends... Let me ask you, can apathy set in even among Christians at Christmas time? What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I can be apathetic. Can you, believer in Christ? We can be apathetic, right? Um, and, and as odd as it sounds, I think apathy, even at Christmas time, is, 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 it happens a lot. You know, it's the same old story. You know, same old story, same old gospel, same old songs, same old tradition, same old family, right? It can, it almost lends itself towards apathy. This is what happens when we don't seek God afresh as Christians at Christmas time. 
that we, that we don't ask him, God, reveal to me the wonder of the incarnation afresh. When we don't spend time in the scriptures studying and, and looking and, and digging in deep to see the glory of who Christ is, we just sort of become apathetic, right? We've done this before. We're more interested in Christmas parties and we're interested in, in traditions and our Christmas trees and all of that is good and great and we should enjoy it. But if we sort of get wrapped up in all that stuff, then the Christ of Christmas that we worship and we say we adore just sort of gets pushed on the back burner. Friends, can, can apathy happen even among, among Christians? Yeah, of course it can. The story is told of, of Howard Hughes, right? The eccentric billionaire. And he, he owned several casinos in Las Vegas. And the story goes that when he died, his public relations director for his company asked all the casino managers that they would observe a, a minute or a moment of silence, uh, sort of in honor uh, in respect for Hughes's passing. And so the message went out over the public address systems in his casinos, and for just a brief moment, the noisy casinos fell silent. Housewives stood uncomfortably clutching their paper cups, and, and, and at the craps tables, the stickmans were, they were cradling their dice, and the pit bosses were kind of looking anxiously as this minute went by. And after about a minute, one of the pit bosses leaned forward and whispered to the tickman, Okay, now's the time. Roll the dice. He's had his minute. And everything went back to normal. Friends, I think it's easy for us to treat Christ that way, at Christmas time, we sit through a service, we sing a song, we rush out the door to do what we're supposed to do, and we sort of think in our mind, you know what, Christ, he's gotten his minute, right? He's gotten his minute. Friends, may it not be so for me and you. Let's dig deep into who he is. Let's read and pray and ponder and be with his people. And then when we do that, that leads to a third response, and it's the response of adoration. We most clearly see that in these mystery men called the Magi. We see it specifically in verses 10 and 11. So if you'll turn there and look with me. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gold, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Friends, here I think in these couple of verses, I see about four ways that the Magi adored Christ. Number one, I think they adored Christ with their emotions. Their emotions were involved in the worship of Christ. Notice verse 10, when they saw the star, right? Apparently the star had appeared and led them to Jerusalem. Apparently it it, it disappeared. And then it reappeared, right? And it led them to Bethlehem. And in verse 10, it says, When the star appeared, when they saw it, they were what? What does it say? They were overjoyed, right? It doesn't say that they were like, Oh, great, there's the star. Let's go. Right? It doesn't say they were like, Oh, let's go get a cup of coffee, right? It's been a long trip. No, they were overjoyed, right? They had gone all this way, and now finally they were going to see the birth of, of the king that they had anticipated, right? And so, friends, uh, our, our emotions are involved in our adoration. Let me ask you this, Christian. How are, how are your emotions doing this Christmas season? 
Are they being stirred for your Savior? Are you in wonder of who he is? Or do you marvel at the mystery that the God of the universe humbled himself and added humanity to his deity? And he humbled himself and became one of us as a baby, as a newborn baby. That, my friends, is incredible. And not only did he do that, but that little baby, well, he grew up to be a man. And as Philippians 2 says, that he humbled himself even to the point of death. Can you ponder for a moment that the creator of all that ever was or ever will be died? That he subjected himself to human death. What great love he has for us. But not only that, Paul says in Philippians 2 that he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a what? A cross. It's not like he just had a comfortable death in his bed, right? No, he he humbled himself to a criminal's death, to a torturous death. For me and you, friends, if that doesn't stir your emotions, then I don't know what does. Our emotions were involved, but not only that. But notice they worshipped Jesus with their bodies. Did you see that? It says that they, they saw the child, and what did they do? Did they sit in the recliner and said, let me hold the little baby? Did they do that? They didn't sit in the recliner, right? What did they do? They bowed down, right? Their knees hit the floor, and I suspect, I suspect that their head hit the ground, right? We worship Christ with all that we are, right? With our emotions, we worship him even with our bodies. Friends, how are you worshiping Christ with your body this Christmas season? Because all that we do and all that we are with our hands, with our eyes, with our minds, with our thoughts, with our, with our tongues, right? The words we say is all in adoration. Not only that, but they, they worshiped Christ <clears throat> With their will, I think. It says that they bowed down and they worshipped him. Now, we don't exactly know who these men were. Um, most likely they were learned men from the east, most likely from Babylon. Uh, were they kings, like the song says, right? We three kings of Orient Art. I don't know. Maybe. They might have been, they had some authority. But they, but they were important guys, right? These were, these were not lowly shepherds, right? These were important men, And they likely had authority in some realm of life. And yet when they encounter Christ, what do they do? They not only bow down, but they worship. The idea of the word there is to submit. They said, there is someone greater than me in the house, right? There is someone greater whose authority trumps mine. And so they submitted even their wills to Christ. Friends, are you, am I submitting my will to Christ this Christmas season? Fourth, they gave gifts, did they not? And we give, give gifts at Christmas time. It's, it's a great tradition. I like getting gifts. I love giving gifts, right? It's, it's good. And it stems, I think, from, from this. They opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts. Friends, I want to ask, what treasures are we opening up to Christ this Christmas season? What, 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 what is it that we love that we're giving back a portion Maybe it's our time. I don't know about you, but I think most of us treasure our time, right? We treasure it. Are we, are we offering some of that time to Christ this holiday season? What about what's in our bank accounts? Do we treasure that? Oh yeah, we do, right? And if you say you don't, then you're probably lying. We, we value money, right? Are we, are we giving a portion of, of that back 
to God's work in the local church and beyond? Are, are we offering up that which is valuable to us, to Christ? What about our gifts or our talents or our opportunities to serve? There are many ways that we can present Christ with gifts this holiday season. So we'll close with this and then we'll sing our Christmas carol. December 1903. After many attempts, the Wright brothers successfully, finally, successfully got their flying machine off the ground. Finally. And of course, they were thrilled. And so as the story goes, they telegraphed a message to their sister, whose name was Catherine. And this is what they wrote. We have actually flown 120 feet. We'll be home for Christmas. We have flown 120 feet. We'll be home for Christmas. Catherine, of course, was thrilled, and so she hurried with the message to the editor of the local newspaper and showed him the message. And he glanced at it, and he read it, and he said, Oh, how nice. The boys will be home for Christmas. They missed something there, didn't they? Something important. They missed the big news. The mankind had flown. Friends, this Christmas, in the midst of parties and travels and plans and shopping and controversy and kids and, and, and work and parties and, and, and everything that sort of surrounds this. Let's not sort of miss the big news, right? Christ has been born to us, and our proper response is, oh, come, let us adore him. So I'm going to pray. Our worship team is going to come, and we'll close in song.